Do you want to know what is going on in the minds of CTOs out there regarding compensation, hiring, retention rates, the churn rates in employment? Well, you're going to have a wonderful opportunity today to listen in on a conversation led by Augustine LeBron with 10 CTOs in the room and very interesting thoughts and ideas about what's going on out there right now. So have fun. From Seven CTOs, my name is Etienne De Bruin, and you're in the CTO studio. Somebody said it was a hot topic. Yeah, darn, it's a hot topic. What do we pay people? What are we supposed to be paying people? So, as I said, I'm going to start off with a warning. This might get uncomfortable because you're probably going to disagree with some of the things I'm going to say. And honestly, I could be wrong about some of it. I've been wrong many times before. This could easily be yet another one of them. But the point here and the reason I'm doing it this way is because I want to actually have an honest conversation instead of people saying the same things that they always say about comp. Okay? So let's talk about what I would consider the usual story about compensation, which is there's a labor market and standard microeconomics applies. There's supply of labor, which is people looking for jobs, and a demand for labor, which is companies looking for workers. So on the supply side, obviously, the more a job pays, the more people want to do it. And on the demand side, the cheaper you can get a worker, the more of them you'll hire, probably. And these curves intersect and you have what's called that market clearing price. This is how it works for commodities. This is how it works for oil, lean hogs, pistachio nuts. And so the question I have, is the market for, say, a senior React dev the same as the market for pistachio nuts? And the answer is, of course not. That's crazy. For one thing, pistachios are undifferentiated products, pretty much. People definitely are not, uh, and especially not knowledge workers. But even worse, the way that most companies think about hiring is as though they're shopping for workers, but they're not, right? Because one important difference is that pistachios don't care who buys them, but people care an awful lot about who they work for. This is like a very big difference, okay? So... This is the usual story, and I'm going to claim that this is just a mistake, right? And so where do these mistakes come up? I'm going to focus the question by saying a very simple question. What's the market rate for a director of data science? So I'm just going to throw it out there. Hey, everyone, what do you think is the market rate for a director of data science? Just shout out numbers. 225. Yeah, 220. Yeah. 220. Anybody else? 240, 220, depending on size of the company. 250. Cool. Anybody else? All right. Can I ask, is this people guessing or is this what people are actually paying? Because we're not paying that. (laughs) I love it. So this is an email I got from a friend of mine. He was looking for a director of data science. He wants somebody with a quant PhD, blah, blah, blah. He's budgeting 750 to 850 plus benefits for a director, plus 150 to an additional 150 to 200 for a senior director. He has flexibility to go hire for an exemplary candidate. Okay. I know another company that's hiring for a director of data science right now they're around 350. I know another company that is hiring a director of data science right now, and they're looking to pay 150. Okay. So who's making a mistake here? And I'm going to argue that nobody is making a mistake here. It's just that market rates don't exist. But I want to get back to this. I want to make another data point, which is that the company I used to work for, we had massive interns intern classes, we paid our interns an annualized rate of $200,000 a year. Okay. Were we making a massive mistake? Who knows? But the the idea that a market rate exists, I think is just one of these mistakes we're going to have to get away from. There are a few things that frustrate me more on this stuff. 
than salary surveys because people look at those numbers and they look at them as gospel. But there's so many ways to get biased and skewed numbers on comp from those surveys. And I think, in fact, the link that Beth put this morning about comp in the Netherlands is like just a great example of this. There's no one number. And then there's this. I think, I can't remember who it was actually, said, my guy got poached for 20% more post a, a couple months ago. Maybe is the thing that started this whole conversation. And of course, the question is, are they crazy? Is this other company crazy? And of course, the subtext really five minutes later is, am I crazy? And the point here is that maybe nobody's crazy here. The other thing about it is that when we think about market rates, it's a subtle thing about how you think about your workforce, right? Because even though we all talk about the importance of culture and hiring and that sort of thing, if you're hyper-focused on getting a good deal, then it's more like you're a vulture trying to pick off the cheapest workers you can. And so this is the first key insight that I think I've had about comp, which is there's no such thing as a market rate. Now, at this point, somebody's going to probably put up their hands if, you're, if maybe you're dying to do it right now. But what about, is this something comes up again and again? It's in fact, somebody mentioned it in one of the, in the document already. What about the big boys? Uh, and the thing I hear again and again in talking to people is Fang pays the big numbers because they're so big. And again, I'm going to claim that this is just wrong. These companies pay so much money for one simple reason. They just make a lot of money. And so if you're making a lot of money, then you should probably hire people so you can keep making more money. And as a result, you get big. So this isn't rocket science, but I think people get the arrow of causation here wrong a lot of the time. So I'm going to claim this is our second big insight here. Comp is a function of your profitability. The third thing I want to say is there's, I think, a better way to think about the process of hiring people and thinking about comp. Instead of that sort of supply and demand kind of model, I'm going to argue that a better model is this idea of an art auction. Like every piece of art is different and you can't compare a Jackson Pollock to a Caravaggio. So this is the supply side of the question, right? But there's also the fact that every art collector has different preferences. Some people love Kandinsky, some people hate him. And this is the demand side. And finally, the other thing is that the transaction mechanism is an auction. It's not like you're going to the store. You bid, maybe you bid again, but in the end, the worker has the power to say yes or no. And so the mechanics are quite different. So I think this is our third key insight. Hiring is like an art auction more than going to the store. So how does this help us? How do we actually determine comp? I'm going to argue that this is a simplified model, but a way that I think is productive. Step one, what is the marginal revenue that this person is going to bring into the company? If I hire this person, how much more money does this company make? This is a very hard question to answer. And in fact, I want to spend maybe the next conversation we have on this question, because I think it's like super, super important. So let's just take an example. Let's just say that the person's going to bring in half a million dollars a year in, in marginal revenue if you hire them. Question two is, what gross margins are you targeting? Let's say you're a typical SaaS company, so maybe you're targeting 50% gross margins. Then it's a simple calculation, right? Revenue times gross margins, that's the most you could pay this employee in order to maintain that margin. It works out to 250K a year. Now, of course, you have to divide that number by all the overhead that you have. You have like social security and cop and all this stuff and taxes and all that stuff. So let's say 155 a year. So the headline comp number that you're going to be giving this person. So here's, this is the big question, right? Can you get the right person for this number? And if you can't, you need to rethink your business model. And this is something that's really hard for a lot of companies and a lot of people to accept. But I think this is the core of why comp is so hard, right? You're competing against companies that are more profitable than you. 
you're going to have a problem. So that's the, the, the provocative stuff I wanted to say and then want to get it out of the way. In terms of the road ahead, like I said, maybe next conversation, we can have a really deep dive discussion on how do we determine the value of an employee to a company, like in terms of marginal revenue. And indeed, what's that relationship between comp and value? If I pay somebody 150K, they get me X value. If I find somebody in that same role for 200K, like, am I going to get more than 33% more value? Like, these are very tough questions. This factors into this idea of the 10 or stuff, right? Do they exist? I claim they do. How do you find them? Do they matter? Do I need them? All these sorts of, and in particular, and maybe this is something good for maybe that third conversation. Again, we're going to guide, this is going to be guided by you guys, but what comp structures make sense for which roles? How much should be bonus? How much should be stock? How much should be discretionary? Whatever, all these things, right? Like, how do we sort this out? So that's my picture of the landscape. But my intent here is not to say this is correct or anything. I just, I want to throw ideas out there so that we can have that conversation. So let's have at it. I am, I am willing to listen to all of your complaints about my claims. Speaking of the, the conversation around marginal value, there may be some like subgroups of us, like us agencies, that's a little easier for us agency folks. We know what rates we can charge in our markets. There's a little bit of intangible stuff there, of course, to, to add into the equation. That would be interesting to me. Yeah, that sounds right. It's probably much easier for an agency to figure out those kinds of numbers. I like the idea of knowing your budget. It's like watching those house shows and you always get annoyed because like people shop outside their budget. So I feel like maybe it's what you're putting out there is some solid advice on don't think about what you need, think about what you can afford. I totally agree with that. I think in a, I think it gets fuzzy in a product business, it's not an agency when you're trying to forecast into the future and you're saying, all right, we're not profitable now, but in three years, we're going to be, you're going to have this sort of margin and in a forecasting scenario. And I guess you could apply some sort of discounted cash flow to figure out your budget. Yep. But uh, yeah, that, that's the challenge that we, we've been facing. Early stage startup like me as well. None of my employees are providing direct revenue right off the bat, but it's gonna, it's investment and long-term investment. So planning how much is this person going to contribute over a year, two years? Yeah, I, I love all these comments. I think that I think what I think they highlight is that maybe I'm going to throw this out as a question. Is this the kind of stuff you think about when you think about figuring out what you need to pay somebody? And I think a lot of the time, I think people just don't. Like, what's the rate for a React dev? Okay, can I pay that? Can I get away with less? I also am curious if folks have any experience. I roll my eyes a lot when I talk to people and they're like, oh man, they got really good devs. It's Facebook and Google and blah, 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 alumni. I know tons of great developers and hardly any of them have worked at those companies. So I'm wondering if that golden ticket is worth the, uh, the price tag. And if you get someone who's been in that culture, they might not mind going back. So then you're always competing with the rates, right? It's probably better to aim for the people who didn't make the cut or don't. My question is companies like Facebook and Google who clearly pay just massive amounts of money. How much are they working like a VC where they're investing in people, hoping that by paying this person a half million or million, it's going to pay off because they're going to develop some new great thing that's going to make us money versus the other eight or nine employees who they're overpaying who really aren't contributing, but they can afford to do that. They can afford to overpay to get that 10x or the 100x or whatever that's going to create the next great thing for them. And it's just an investment. When you've got cash to burn, you can take those risks. And they're good risks to take because then you're denying your competitors those employees who might be those 10x, 100x sort of mm -hmm. impact. What you have said applies to a certain portion of the market, but I don't think it applies to 
the market, the part of the market that I'm in, because I specifically hire in Latin America and, and outside the US and a lot of those other companies like the Facebooks and Googles and so forth, they don't, they might not hire outside the US because they don't want to deal with international. So I think there are some deals to be had where you can get away with hiring great people at much lower prices. If you're willing to take the people that the other companies won't take. For, you know, arbitrary reasons. I was going to say that anyway, you, you are hiring from a different market in Latin America, but we do have the same situation replicated. The same that happens in the U.S. happens in Latin America as well. You only get access to the best talent when you can compete with what other, others are, are offering. I, I do agree with Brian that since pandemic, many companies in the U.S. started hiring directly and that well, generated a, a super shakening situation in the in, in Latin America because now like local companies are not able to compete with US dollars, to be honest. So it's an interesting, very specific case. But I think the same, like the slides, although I'm, I'm seeing, I was saying you were trying to simplify a very complex situation. I, I think the same model would, would apply to Latin America in a sense. It's an interesting idea, this marginal value as a driver for the for salary. I think I have, I guess I get stuck on, I don't really know how to do that very well, to be honest. We're, and we're a financial services company and it was a tech enabled financial service company. So we have a platform, but we're not, it's like, we're not even selling the thing that we're building. We're using the thing that we're building in order to make our operation more efficient. So tying that back to a specific person and the marginal value they're adding, I would love to understand how to do that better. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the thing Paul and I talk about all the time is software is one of those things where it's like, it's like a manufacturing thing, except that you don't have great visibility into like your inputs and your outputs. It's not like an actual physical plant building widgets. And so that's the challenge I think we should probably try to explore in the next couple conversations. So how to get some ideas on how to do that. Yeah, it was similar. It seems to be in order to use the marginal value model, you really need to have a feedback loop where you know how accurate your estimates of marginal value were. Yeah, for sure. Eric? So I'll take a contrarian stance, Augustine, just to see if it sparks any reactions. But maybe there isn't, maybe there are market rates, but maybe there isn't one market rate, right? So maybe there's a market rate for a small company and a market rate for a medium company and then a market rate for a fan company. And if you are a small company, you still have to land within that market rate band to be attractive to someone who would work at probably the kind of experience they would get at a small company. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So we tell our clients all the time, you're not competing against Fang because you can't compete with them on salaries. You have to compete on all those other things. Like you're not a faceless drone in a large building. You get to actually work on real stuff and put your fingers in many pies and all that stuff. And yeah, Steve? Yeah, I guess... I, I like the way you framed it. I, I think of it a little bit differently that instead of focusing on revenue, I think there's different ways of calculating value for di even not just for different companies, but for different roles within a company. So you have people that are good at managing revenue, but you also have people that are good at managing risk or managing resources. And then you get people that are, I mean, you get the really premium people, you get into the senior leadership where you get people that can do two or three of those things. Mm. And that's, that drives a premium. But the way I would measure the value of somebody who like a DevOps person or somebody who's good at, at QA and managing risk, the way I would value that person is very different than the way I would value somebody in business development who can drive a lot of revenue. 
Yeah. Yeah. I love that idea. Yeah. Like Julia said, in, in my thought on it was oversimplified on purpose, but yeah, like I think that the key insight there, Steve, that you're having is business value, whether it be revenue, risk, or whatever, is the thing that drives how much you, like, what's the roof on what you can pay somebody? <laughs> Brian, you had a thought? Yeah. I, at first, when I was reading what you were putting out there about, it's like an art auction, but every piece of art is different and things like that, I, that resonated with me and I really liked that idea. But unfortunately, I don't think that's really how the world works, at least not in my experience. I worked at Microsoft and there were a thousand, I worked in the Microsoft office group and a thousand people generated $10 billion of revenue because that's how much office generated. There's no way that the amount of value that each individual was adding was any way correlated to how much they're being paid. So I think it to some extent is that the companies are trying to make additional profits and they're trying to pay their employees a wage that they think is fair and that somebody will accept. So they're trying to meet somewhere in that band of here's what I'm willing, what the person's willing to accept and what they're going to be happy or more or less happy with and what the company wants to pay. And then secondly, in terms of the 10 Xers, there's, I would definitely say that at my last company, I was definitely one of the 10 Xer people. But I wasn't making 10 times more than the other guys who were working fewer hours and not contributing as much. And in fact, I know for a fact that salespeople and not even the top salespeople, but there were salespeople that were making substantially more money than I was. And I was working much harder. And in, in my estimation was adding a lot more value than they were. It just depends on how you, how you characterize value. But I just, my boss would say, look, salespeople get paid more because they just do. And good salespeople are really hard to find. And it's not fair, but it is what it is. So I wish the world worked some in some respects the way you're describing. And maybe it does work like that for certain people at certain companies, but that's not really matched. Gotcha. Yeah, I think when you refer to the to the Microsoft Office situation, obviously Office is an incredible cash cow. But I think taking that big pot and dividing it by the number of employees or something is the wrong way to think about it. Like there's a huge amount of value to office that's just the machine that's going to keep running, even if you hired like terrible workers for two years. And so it's like that. The question is, what's the marginal value, right? Like you can think of it in sports terms. For those of you who understand value over replacement player, you can quantify how valuable a player is compared to who's the average person that I would replace them with. That's what we're trying to get at, it, at least in my mind, in, in kind of thinking about these things. But I totally get what you're saying, Brian, about it's hard to compare the value of a salesperson to a, de to a developer. That's just like a really hard <laughs> problem. Are you familiar with Shackley values? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it sounds like in some ways you're actually describing Shackley values and trying to determine how much, if the person working alone would get paid this much and you would get paid that much, but then when you bring them together, the rate that was a way of trying to compute it. But I think that it may be a different way of thinking about it is what you were just saying is how much would it cost? How much would I have to pay someone else to replace you? And I think that's, that may be more aligned with how people are thinking about how much they need to pay people. What can I get someone to, to accept that is of comparable skill level to do this job? I think the point there with Shapley values in cooperative games is that, look, no person is an island, especially in the kind of workplaces we have where it's all team-based and how do you put a good team together and that sort of thing. So I think it's a very good point that you're bringing up. Chris, you had a thought? Well, one way to think of it might be 
how much is it going to cost your company to not hire someone, right? To not have that person and not just think about their productivity, but the lack of productivity for the other people who are having to compensate for making up for not having that person around. Mm-hmm. And that might be, it's still all guesswork, right? It's not, we're not going to come up with an exact number in a spreadsheet, but it gives you an idea of whether you can pay someone 175000 or 375000 and and how much is that the business? Yeah, for sure. Edward over in South Africa, what do you got for us? Yeah, I'm in Canada now. Oh, you're in Canada now. Yeah, but what I've seen happening is in senior personnel that does hit that, that high salary range, they just split the cost over multiple. So saying that this person is going to contribute over multiple areas and therefore the cost can be split then. The problem with that is, is that when you have to unlock one department, for example, for a month, the cost becomes astronomical. But as long as you can split the cost center, it, it, it starts making sense. Yeah, I was going to say, when you're always talking about um, kind of getting it back to reality, it just sounds like market rates again. So it's knowing what lane you're in, you know. Exactly. Yeah, look, we all know that you can hire a, a, a 40th percentile person and a 60th and a 90th percentile for the same job, and they're going to have different values in that role. It's just a question of, for you, for your company, for your situation, is it worth going for the 90th percentile person? Is it worth going? Like, it's just a, it's a business decision, right? To me, the, the tricky part is it's not just a matter of all the calculations that you said, which I agree with, but it's so, it all depends on the comparison because it, it's in comparison to what? Because mm-hmm. of course, if I could have a manager that generates like 300,000 in revenue and I can pay him uh, or her 100, or if I can pay him uh, 50 grand or 200 grand, that's going to depend on how they compare to the market and how much the market is paying them so I don't lose them in the future or even if that I can hire them in the first place. So what I'm really having a hard time figuring out is where to get proper information and then how do we know if what we pay is competitive or not or do Mm -hmm. we wait until that person leaves to realize that was not enough yeah so just a couple of thoughts that i have just based on my experience in working some of our clients is one of the things you can do well if you're very uh, self-aware is decide what percentile person am i looking for there's a for every position there's a distribution of both salaries and of 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 abilities of people and so maybe for some roles look you don't need that that really good person like some roles, look, let's face it, like a lot of software development, blue collar work, right? Let's face it. And so maybe you don't need that 90th percentile person in that role. Can we create management structures that, that sort of get really good work out of people who, who can't get a job or can't get salaries higher than the ones you're paying? That's, that's the trade-off we do as engineering managers a lot of the time. And so understanding it's what percentile person do I need in this role? One of the fa- failure modes that we see a lot is people say, okay, I want like 60th or 65th percentile people in every role where probably the optimal thing is to have one or two or three like 80th percentile people and a bunch of 40th percentile people. That's probably a better trade-off a lot of the time. And at a macro level, that's a lot of what sort of offshoring and nearshoring is. That's what we do. Like when you said the blue collar thing, I was giggling because that's part of my pitch. <laughs> like when we're talking to people, I tell them like, this stuff is not rocket science. You're moving data from here to there. We can train people in a month to do that. Like, the 20% that does 80% of the work you need done. And then we have these 
for show pony people for the rest of it. Yeah, I don't know if there's direct correlation though between the best people and the highest salary. There's, it's yeah. not that direct. It, there's a correlation, it's but it's not perfect. Yeah, and interestingly, like on the other side of the of this thing, people don't know how much they're worth as well. They're also trying to figure out how much should I be paid. Uh, am I okay accepting this job? So it's it's complex for. I'm, I know I'm not adding any answers, just more questions, perhaps. But uh, I don't know how many of you have read Reed Hastings' book, No Rules. Popular book came out recently, but there is a part in there, and I understand this is Netflix. So Netflix, of course, is a big gorilla. But one of the things that they do at Netflix, which I thought was interesting, food for thought, is they actually encourage all employees to know what they're worth. It's the opposite of what most companies do. One of the things that Reed puts in the book is he says, look, if you're an employee at Netflix, your job is to figure out what you're worth. And if you get a call from a recruiter, we actually want you to not hang up, which is interesting. Take the call, find out what the recruiter's willing to pay you. But please, as a courtesy, give us the first right of refusal to match the offer. So they've created this culture where people are responsible for figuring out their own worth. It's counterintuitive because you'd think, well, that would just encourage people to leave. But in fact, that's not quite what happens because people like the fact that they're being encouraged by their management to, to know their worth. Listening to this conversation, it's one of the exercises we've gone through, obviously come through the end of the year is trying to make sure everybody, it's not just about hiring, it's about the people that work for you right now. And are they being paid, you know, correctly? And I mean, we have developers, especially our initial developers, that one of them left for twice his salary. How do you go compete with that when you're trying to create kind of an equitable pay scale among people that are in your uh, workforce? And I think it's it struck me over the last year or two that it, it isn't just what are the pay levels, it's that standard deviation about the, the range of what people are willing, what companies are willing to offer for what we've been saying, pretty much commodity roles has just been all over the place. And there really is no normally. Yeah, certainly you, you definitely see it in companies where, okay, we've got this contract and you know, this has to get done like in two months, come hell or high water. And yeah, I mean, you're just going to pay whatever it is you need to do to, to get this, whatever, $10 million contract done. And so at that point, that's a weird temporary situation, but sometimes that can get normalized too. So mm. it's not ideal. We're, we're, we're in a situation right now where if somebody wants to leave, even if you're one of your best people wants to leave to find more money, they'll be able to all likelihood. And so that's one of the things we realize is all of the things other than money that figure into this equation of why people would want to work with you and for you has become so monumentally important is because those are the things that are going to make people decide to, to make a decision contrary to their financial. Of course, it might not even be contrary, right? Taking a job at a new company that you don't know is a risk and there's a cost associated with that risk. Oh, it sounds pretty good, but it turns out it wasn't so great. Like people generally don't want to leave their jobs. It's comfortable. Making change is scary and hard. And so like most people probably just want to stay somewhere they're happy. And if they feel like they're getting paid reasonably fairly, that's probably good enough for most people. Yeah. I'm wondering if this idea of handling it like an art auction and empty Stevens mentioned, aren't we creating an extremely toxic hiring environment? We can't pay the salaries. People are not worth these salaries. Young people coming up, they know that the golden ticket is getting into one of these bigger companies. They learn all of the requirements to do it. They survive only to be there. And then 
after their stocks are vested, they're happy to take whatever job because they've made it. But now they've got this unrealistic expectation about their skills, which just doesn't add up. Yeah, that's definitely a phenomenon. There's no shortage of online courses that you can do to learn how to crack the Google interview. It's like, how many dynamic programming problems do you have to do to like finally get a job at Google or something? I don't know. James, I think I brought up a really interesting point from a cultural perspective, which is that, ju- that younger people seem to be more willing to discuss comp with their peers. And it used to be taboo and it's not really not anymore. But I think the thing that he points out, and this gets back to what you were saying, Steve, is if you have certain roles and you fit, if you have pay bands for those roles and you systematically move people outside of those pay bands, then you're just creating this fundamental instability in your company's culture that's going to bite you eventually. Ryan, you had a thought? Suppose that when people interview for a job, there's an interview process, there's a screening process. It's not, it's not like we literally have developers standing in front of a room. We haven't gotten there yet, but like maybe someone can go and start that. We'll call it a developer auctions and we'll just have 50 companies sitting there in front of them simultaneously and literally bidding on them in real time. Um, or we could even do a silent auction, but that's, we're not there yet, fortunately, but my thing, it just, I don't think that really describes how it works because you have to apply to a job. You have to meet with a recruiter. There's weeks that pass between opportunities. A lot of times when you get an offer, the offer is exploding and you have a week to decide. Mm. It's not like typically you get more than just a couple offers. We all don't have the bandwidth to apply to a hundred companies, get a hundred offers all within a week and make a decision that way. So that's why I don't think it's exactly, it's not quite like an art auction. I, I agree. The mechanics definitely, there's a lot of mechanics there that are different. I think mean, my point in saying it, not to necessarily defend the analogy, but my point in saying it is like, it's definitely not like going to the store. I think that's what I was trying to make. Yeah, I think I have a question for the group. We're a pretty small company. And in terms of like US pay rates would be in, in that small company band, we can't compete with Fang and so on. Something that's unique for us is that we, we pay without respect to lo- location. So some of our European developers, they get the exact same rate that we would pay if they were in the U.S., which locally to them is FANG-level compensation. So my question is, do you think now that with everything that's changing and how remote work is becoming normalized, do you think this is, are we in the leading phase of something that's coming? Or is do you think this is going away and that we'll still have very much location-specific pay even as people can move around? I raised that exact point on the Slack yesterday. Yeah, this is, you're going to get some strong opinions here, Eric. I'm warning you. Bring it. My opinion is it's going to flatten out and people are going to be, um, I think a lot of the devs now are getting out of school and getting 150 grand and they don't realize in five years, they're going to have a hard time finding a job because they just got a cushy job and I've really done anything, taking long lunches and all that. And then it globalizes and I think it'll be like uh, 2000 all over again. That's just my guess. At least that's what keeps me like not doing that. I tell devs all the time that, that we're coal miners. Enjoy it while it lasts because it, it won't. I, I think the, the blue collar comment is exactly right. That at some point there's a, a supply of devs starts meeting demand and it, it stops escalating in a crazy way for most people. Not all, but for most. Yeah. And it's just not that hard. It'd be, if you're a guy you're waiting tables and you're like, I can spend a year and learn how to program and be making $100,000. How many people are going to sit around and wait tables and not learn how to program? It's just not that hard. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think Tracy, Tracy puts it uh, just, just really quickly. I think Tracy makes a really good point here. I, I looked up Bureau of Labor Statistics information. There are more computer programmers in the United States than auto workers as of a, a few years ago. 
So we're there. I throw out that I think, though, I think eventually it's going to flatten out. I think with the move of the fan companies towards more remote work, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better as they're, they're opening up remote work and they're still paying the same rates. I know specifically in, in Birmingham, Alabama, we had shipped that started there and then moved to San Francisco, then came back to Birmingham and was paying the 200,000 plus for senior developers, which was twice as much as any other company was paying there. They're able to just eat up the whole market. So in the short term, I expect it's just going to continue to inflate at the, the crazy rates that we're seeing. Yeah. I'm with the, the David there, but on the question on uh, if we should pay based on location or not, we, my company, we do nearshoring. So we have, I'm from Buenos Aires, Argentina. We have people all over Latin America. And when we started the company five years ago, we asked ourselves, are we paying people based on how much the project pays, which all of our clients are in the U.S.? Or are we paying people based on their locations? Because it's not the same, even in Latin America, it's not the same to live in Mexico where with uh, $5,000, you are just like living decently, but you're not like the king of the world. We're in Argentina, for example, that's a lot of money. We went back and forth a lot and we ended up deciding to, there's no fair answer from what we identified. There's no way of being fair towards everyone, even if we pay people a differentiated rate rate based on location, it's not going to be fair based on what clients pay. And if we do the other way around, there's always someone that is not winning. We ended up paying everyone the same and we expected people to start moving to locations where the cost of living was cheaper and that never happened. Moving to Europe, which is even more expensive. So I think there's no correct answer or way of anticipating this from what I've seen, way of anticipating what the behavior will be. But Eric, if you find a formula there, please share it because we are always wondering about the same. Yeah. Eric's head of HR wrote a very long, very thoughtful blog post about location-based pay. I strongly suggest, I don't know if Eric, you want to throw it on the chat there, but it's probably the best thing I've read about it because it it, it understands exactly what you just said, Julia, is like for any argument you can make about X, like you will be able to make a very sensible sounding argument about the opposite. And so probably the answer isn't so simple. And Paul, you had a thought? I just going to say real quick, yeah, good thoughts on that. Just to picking up on what Ryan was saying, I, I think a useful piece of guidance is to think of your, I think what's happening is salaries are moving to more bimodal distributions where you have the people that are responsible for your core IP, like your core edge, you want to pay them a lot. Then the work that you do in your company that isn't, let's say, existential or core IP, or it's just like Ryan's saying, the, the blue collar work of getting the, the stuff out the door, you need to think about how you save money there. And I think a dangerous place to be is in the middle of the bell curve. And that seems to be what's going away now is we're going from fat curve to something that looks more like two, two peaks. And so maybe that's a good way to think about how you spend your salaries. Yeah, my question, maybe this is better served for, for next week's topic or something, but like, how is everyone budgeting for this? And there's just such a huge variance. And, and we know that like, like an art auction, you may want a Picasso, but it may take you 10 years before you can actually bid on that Picasso, right? Before you have the ability. So how do you budget for knowing that you want this, but knowing that it could take you a year? And then during that time, other, other things may come along that other, People may come along and you're like, this person could be really useful. I'm, I'm not planning for this person until, you know, nine months out or until I fill this other role, but do we let them go 
because I need to fill this other role first? And then do you shift budget to try and go grab the the person that, you, you know, to outbid them from your competitors? It seems like that's the tricky part is how do you deal with this magic budgeting thing? You've got to plan for this. You can't just, we don't have unlimited funds and just say, I found the person and so let's throw whatever we can at them. Yeah, this is in, in game theory known as the secretary problem, right? Like, how can I get the best person, but I have to make a sequential decision at every point. And the answer for everybody who's, who's a nerd is one over E people is that's the fraction you should interview and then hire. But like, it's a similar sort of thing, right? There's a cost to, to, to not doing something. There's a cost to doing something suboptimal. And like, how do we balance that? I think it's probably worth diving into next in the next conversation for sure. Chris, I was going to say, do you know what your budget is? Or is it budget just unlimited? Yeah. So right now I'm, I'm getting ready to raise money. So I'm trying to budget for how much money I'm going to raise. And it's, yeah, that's tough. Ideally I raise more money than I need, but that's not a great idea either. And it's, it's finding that magic, you know, balance between. There's so much inflation right now. It seems hard to tell. Yeah. I, I think that might be useful, Chris. I don't know. We could probably find another, maybe two or three or four people in seven CTOs in that same situation you're in. And maybe we can figure out a way to create a little working group where you just, you all work on each other's stuff together to hash out some of these questions. Cause I think doing it alone is awful, right? Yeah, it's tough. I was just telling Julia, it's guesswork, but it's tough when you're the only person guessing, like you have yeah. no idea how close or, or far off, like what might be my reality. Someone else might look at and go, whoa, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Okay. How many times in the last few years has the market rate changed significantly? It's super mm-hmm. volatile right now. So you're planning right now for the next six months, a year, and it's going to change in a year. Yeah. Yeah. As somebody in a similar situation, would definitely be interested in some sort of a working group there. We've seen that in the past year since we fundraised budgeting, whatever, 120K for a certain role. It's like, that's actually going to be 150 or 180. And <laughs> we didn't know that when we raised money. So how do we? go and report that back to investors and all those things as well so volatility is is definitely the buzzword (laughs) we definitely have a plan b and maybe a c yeah the other thing getting back to one thing that ryan said that really resonates with me is i don't know if you guys see it on linkedin i see it on linkedin all the time where a recruiter will say hey i need somebody with five years of experience in like netsuite or you know some niche technology where almost definitely there's no more than 100 people out there doing that thing and you're not going to get in touch with them. Like almost definitely the thing you should be biasing towards is finding somebody smart and figuring out a way to train them in the specific niche technology that you have. You can probably just pay them less at first, get them up to speed. You give them a big pay bump in year two. They're super happy now. They're super engaged with your company. They're like, they feel like your company's like a training and growth. There's lots of ways to skin this cat if we get out of the little box that that recruiters in particular want to put us in. Uh, I talked to a lot of recruiters and they like they have one way of looking at the world. And, uh, and I feel like especially for smaller companies, it's probably not optimal. 